thank you for the music team for just a wonderful time of singing. Uh, Genesis 16 is where I would like to draw your attention. And if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? This is uh, the word of the living God. Genesis 16, we'll read verse 1 through 5. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife, Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. That concludes reading of God's word. May he bless his holy, sufficient, authoritative word. Would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we ask now that you would bring us by your spirit and clarity of your word. As a result, may we find conviction for righteousness, and as a result, may we find comfort. We pray that you would bless, would you bless our time of understanding your word, all the the implications, and grant us the wisdom to apply your word, and we ask all these things in Christ's name, amen. Maybe seated. I'm not very good with sermon titles, but here we go. This, the title of this message is Abram and His Two Women. <laughs> Abram and His Two Women. Abram and Sarai got married back in Genesis 11:29. Then in Genesis 12, very, very pivotal chapter of not only the book, but entire Bible, in Genesis 12, the Lord promised Abram that he will have many children. And many, his, uh, his many descendants would become a great nation. And then in Genesis 15, the first five verses, Abram questions God's promise by saying, how can I become a great nation when I don't even have one child? So he questions God, and as a result, the Lord promises Abram again, you're going to have children. Finally, we come to our text here in Genesis 16, and Abram still has no child. What do you do? 
and I want to impose this question to you. What do you do when God promises you something, something wonderful, something amazing, something spectacular, but doesn't tell you when the promise will come to reality? What do you do with that? You wait and wait and wait, and nothing happens. Abram, who later changes his name, as you know, to Abraham, is known as the father of faith. In Genesis 15, when he questions God's promise, God assures him again. In Genesis 15, 6, says, then he believed the Lord, Abraham, that is, he believed the Lord, and he, referring to God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. Like Enoch, Abram represents us. Abram, who, like Abram, we profess to believe in God and his promises, but at times we fail to believe in him and his promises, as we see in Genesis 16. Abram, the father of faith, has become, in our story that we just read, the man of unbelief. As a result, a child is born out of his sin and becomes the antagonist to the people of Israel, not only in biblical times, but even today. Although we may say we believe in God and profess to be a believer, we think sometimes and we live sometimes like an atheist in our private life. That may not be only true individually, but also collectively as a church. You realize there are congregations that say they believe in God, the Bible, and the Holy Spirit, and profess to be a church, yet completely go against what the Bible teaches. As 2 Timothy 3.5 says, a congregation may look like they have a form of godliness, but have denied its power. Hence, this morning, I want to point out a dangerous belief system and practice that has contributed to Abram's sin and how such belief and practice are so prevalent in our time as well. But before we go any further, I want to teach you and share with you perhaps one important theological word, and that word is providence. I want to begin with that word first to help us understand and to really set up a context this morning, providence. Providence refers to how God runs his world. Providence refers to how God runs his world and everything and everyone in it. That means the things that exist, 
and how they exist or don't exist in Abram's case at this time are grounded solely in God's sovereign purpose. In redemptive history, God determines the boundaries for everyone. God determines boundaries for everyone. God turns the hearts and God directs the steps of everyone. That's what providence means. God is in control. This goes for all, both believers and unbelievers. As Genesis 50 teaches, you recall the the story of Joseph. This is after um, the end of the tunnel, if you will, after he has gone through all the stuff that he endured and persevered. And as Genesis 50 teaches, what some people meant for evil, God turned it for good. That's phenomenal theology, and not only theology, but very foundation for how we live as Christians. And that's what Joseph said. He interpreted his circumstances, and he interpreted everything that he has gone through, and he said, what what people meant for evil, God turned it for good. In Matthew 10, verse 30, Jesus says, even the hairs on our heads are all numbered by God. According to Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. And according to Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. All that to say, things don't happen due to bad luck or good luck. God has orchestrated all things and allows things to happen in the way they happen. And that's what we call in theology God's providence. It's not the most popular doctrine because especially in American culture, we like to be in control. We don't like this idea of the sovereignty of God. I want to be sovereign. But we don't like the idea that I have to submit to greater authority like sovereignty of God. What does that mean? So what you have at this very moment and that things that you don't have and whatever you may be experiencing at this very moment or not experiencing is God's providence for your life. As a student, you may not get the classes you want or need at this time. As a working child, as a working adult, you may not get the promotion you wish for or the project that you want at this time. As a single, you may not meet the person you want or need at this time. As a congregation, you may not experience what you want at this time. All that to say, we may not experience what we anticipated or expected. 
Here's a million dollar question now. So, if that's the case, then how should God's people respond or react to God's providence? That's a million dollar question. You explain to me what providence is, Jim, then how should we, as God's people, respond or react to God's providence? According to Numbers chapter 11 and chapter 12, teaches us what and how God's people should respond to providence And how God's people should respond to providence is not by complaining, blaming your unhappiness on someone, or demanding your entitlements. Instead, God's people ought to trust God, wait upon God, persevere in doing good, be patient, long-suffering, endure hardships, Never give up and always be thankful for all circumstances. That's how God's people respond or react to God's providence. Even as a preacher, it is easy to say those things then apply them. I understand that. I'm with you. So that's providence. Let me talk to you about problem now that our text points out to us. I have to set the context here so that you could understand what we're dealing with here in this story. Let's talk about the problem. The problem is in verse 1, as Genesis 16.1 tells us, that is, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. That's a problem. In ancient days, a woman who couldn't have children carried a stigma. She would be looked down on, and that is also true even today in many other cultures outside of our continent. Infertility was seen as a curse by gods or some form of divine judgment. Even in Asian culture, when you are married, and if a woman cannot get pregnant, they kind of question you. What is wrong with that person? Maybe there's a hidden sin, an unconfessed sin, etc. I want to impose this question to men here this morning. That is, what would you say to her if Sarai was your wife? She can't get pregnant. You try and try, nothing happens. Ladies, what would you say to Sarai if she was your friend? Church? What would you say to a member who desperately wants to have a child? What would you say? Now that you have some understanding of God's providence... I hope you would say something along the line that God has his reason that is unknown to us. And it's okay to say that. It's okay okay to say we don't know. 
But God knows. The Bible says the secret things, the mysterious things, things that are mystery, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. And he doesn't have to share that with us. But God knows. So we must trust God, fight discontentment, always be thankful for all circumstances, not complain, play blame games, and feel entitled to things. I hope that's what you would say to Sarai, something along those lines. And I hope that's what you would say to someone who may desire something God isn't allowing at the present time. So we talked about providence, talked about the problem. Let me share with you one more thought before unpacking this passage a little bit this morning. And that word, not only providence, but the word that I want to share with you is the word pragmatism. Perhaps you have heard that word before, you know, that we say that person is very pragmatic. We say that church is very, very pragmatic. Pragmatism. Pragmatism is a belief that what is true or good is determined in terms of success of the results. This philosophy started in U.S. back in 1870 and filtered into many areas in our society, especially in areas of businesses, ethics, and religion, and even in Christianity. If you believe that what is true and what is, what is good is determined by terms of the success of the results, then what is logical to do is next, to do next is really to manipulate whatever you do to get your ideal results. And so the saying goes, you know the saying, the end justifies the what? The means. That is, do whatever, however, whoever, whenever, and wherever to get what you want. Whatever your result is, the end justifies the means. That's pragmatism. So what does Sarai want? She wants to have a child. She doesn't want her husband to feel disgraced in the marketplace among friends and family. She doesn't want the family's name to be tarnished. So she has an idea. She wants to have a child at all cost, at any cost. And let me just say that wanting something so bad that God hasn't allowed it, but you're willing you're willing to have it at any cost is what idolatry is. At that point, you lose a sense of right and wrong. You want something so bad. And as you can see, honoring or glorifying God is not her goal. 
but she is consumed with fulfilling her desire at any cost. And what is her pragmatic suggestion? And to whom does she approach her suggestion? Her husband, Abram, of course. And what does she suggest to Abram? Have him sleep with her Egyptian maid, Hagar. That's an idea. No doubt if the suggestion had come from anyone else, the father of faith would have immediately refused, but this idea came from his own wife. However, what difference does it make if the suggestion came from his wife? Should a suggestion, should a husband listen to his wife without discerning? Should a wife listen to her husband without discerning? Wrong is wrong, regardless if it comes from wife or husband. And I agree with what John Calvin said. Sarai perverted the marriage law by defiling the marital bed, which was appointed only for her and her husband. And I agree with that. And many would agree with that. I'm sure you agree with that. Now, we may be shocked by Sarai's scandalizing suggestion. We wonder how the wife of the father of faith can be like this. What in the world? But according to one writer says, such behavior is perfectly normal and acceptable in the culture where Sarai had come from and in the culture in which she presently lives. Everyone's doing it. Come on now. What is shocking is that although people in the culture may live like that at the time, you wouldn't expect the people of faith to behave like this. That's why this is so scandalous. How can a believer of Yahweh, how can a believer of the Lord behave like this? And as I mentioned earlier, friends, Sarai and Abram represent us. Represent us. May I say to you, we are like them. We are like them. The lesson here in this story is that both Abram and Sarai failed to trust God. And let me show you what happens when you fail to trust God. You ready? First of all, you blame God. You blame God. That's precisely what happened in Genesis 3 in the garden. Adam and Eve thought that God was holding something back from them. They thought, if God is loving, why does he keep something from us? Sarai, likewise, is thinking the same vein. Listen to what she says. This is what Sarai says. Verse 2. Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. What she says is true. It is God who gives life. It is God who withholds life. God is sovereign in that regard. So what Sarai says is true. However, Sarai isn't appropriating such truth 
to her situation. Instead, she is using that truth to blame God. She is using God's truth to blame God, and she is using God's truth in a demeaning and twisted way. You hear the sarcasm? It's the Lord who has prevented me. And that's what happens when you fail to trust God. You blame God and you blame other people also. But Sarai isn't the only one who, who's really blaming God here. It's Abram too. Notice what verse 3 tells us. Abram had been living for 10 years, 10 years in the land of Canaan. Do you know when Abram first received the promise from God that they would have children? It was back in Genesis 12, as I mentioned. And by the time you, re- you reach Genesis 12, verse 5, they're already in Canaan from the land they left. So from Genesis 12 to Genesis 16, about 10 years have gone by. Not 10 weeks, 10 months, but 10 years. They've been trying to have children for over 10 years and no avail. Imagine feeling impatient. Imagine a discouragement. Imagine questioning and doubting the promise of God. Since it was Abram that God made the promise back in Genesis 12, imagine what he was going through. He was probably thinking, where is this promise? Where is this promise of God? It's possible that he was thinking, what good are the promise of God if Sarai is dead or her womb is dead? Are you listening, God? You know what? Abram, like Abram, trusting God in his word does not depend on how we feel. Trusting God in his word does not depend on how we feel or the circumstances we may go through. We are never justified in failing to trust God in his word. We are never justified. Being discontent, unhappy, or what have you doesn't give you the right to do whatever however, whenever, or whoever. Friends, we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. Abram and Sarai must have thought that they had waited long. God probably forgot the promise he made to us. Been 10 years. So let's help God out. Let's make his promise come true through our effort. So Abram listened to Sarai and he slept with Hagar. Let's help God out. And, and so that's what happens when. When people fail to trust God, you blame God. Here's a second thing that happens when you fail to trust God. Not only you tend to blame God, but you will more likely blame other people as well. Notice what happens when Hagar is pregnant 
in verse 4 and 5. Sarai blames Abram for the mistreatment she's getting from Hagar. I mean, Sarai is a classic liar and blame shifter. She blames God when she's not getting what she wants, and when she got what she wanted, she lies and blames others. This pragmatic thinking and practice are not only true individually with Abram and Sarai, but may I say to you, it's also corporately in churches today. Pragmatism in today's churches. I'll just give you a couple of examples. You know, the church, their goal is to, especially when churches are struggling with numbers, and their goal is to have large numbers. And to have people. So they draw people to church at what? All cost. By gimmicks and etc. If that is your goal as a church, yeah, there, there are ways that you can do whatever to draw crowd. How about churches catering to non-Christians to make them like the church? We want people to like our church. So it's no longer theocentric, God-centered, but now it's consumer or people-centered. Give them what they want. And pastors want to be accepted by everyone, trying to look cool or hip. And so as a result of their pragmatic plan, Abram and Hagar have a child. And you know his name in verse 15, Ishmael. So Abram and Hagar, they have a child, Ishmael. Later, God promised, finally, God's promise finally come to fruition when Isaac is born. God delivers his promise Isaac is born, but God rejects Ishmael. A fruit of their pragmatic work, whereas Isaac, God's sovereign choice from the beginning, he receives, he affirms. Ishmael is a result of man's effort. Isaac is a result of God's promise. And I hope you see that. Ishmael is a result of man's effort. Isaac is a result of God's promise. God rejects a result of man's effort. A result of God's promise he receives. And what is the big deal about this? The big deal here is to show what is the true gospel and the other is not. What we see here in Genesis 16 is the fruition of the promise that God made after the fall of Genesis 3. God promised back in Genesis 3, right after the fall in that narrative, God makes a promise that someone will come through their lineage to crush the head of the serpent. And that someone is in the lineage of Abram 
to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob. And many years later, that person is born, and his name is Jesus. God makes that promise way back to Genesis 3. And here in Genesis 16, God rejects man's effort. And God delivers his promise. Jesus was always in the redemptive plan of God from the beginning. Jesus was never plan B because of the fall. Even though the devil tempted Adam and Eve to fall, God's plan was to bring a savior to rescue the people of God. What Abram, Sarai, and Hagar did is an example of man's attempt to bring about God's promise. That's what works-driven religion looks like, friends. No man, no man can bring about God's promise to come true. No man. We don't have power to bring about God's promise. And so when Ishmael came, Ishmael is a product of what man's religion looks like, what man's effort, ideology lead to. The good news is, even though they sinned against God, that is, Abram and Sarai, that is, even though they sin against God, The beauty of this story is God does not give Abraham and Sarai what they deserve, but gives them a life, a son, Isaac. And through Isaac, Jacob will come, and through that lineage, Jesus arrives. And because of the birth, Life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I am now a child of God. And that's the story of good news, friends. And that's the story we see here in Genesis 16, powerfully described. God always keeps his promise. God always keeps his promise. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We ask now, as we have heard your word, we ask your spirit to search our hearts as we meditate and chew upon your truth through this week. And I pray that you would help us. Grant us a strength and help us to trust you. We confess that it is easier to agree and even as a preacher to say that it's difficult because of our own frailties, our own weaknesses, and the pressures and deceptions of this world and from the enemy, the Satan. God, we need strength that goes beyond us So help us 
to trust you and your word. Thank you for helping us to see the gospel here beyond just the story of these people. Thank you for allowing us to understand and make the connection to Jesus. We pray all these things in Christ's name.